I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the first edition of a new series of the Philosophy Now show. This, this afternoon, we'll be giving our ideas and impressions about Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. Isaiah Berlin said of Hume, No man has influenced the history of philosophy to a deeper or more disturbing degree. To help us find out why, I have with me Jane O'Grady, who's teaching a course on Hume this term at the London School of Philosophy, uh, Peter Cale, who is teaching Hume at St Peter's College, Oxford University, and James Arnold, who is completing a PhD on Hume's moral philosophy at King's College, London. Now, David Hume published his first major work, A Treatise of Human Nature, in 1739, before he was 30, as an attempt, broadly speaking, to make morality into a scientific discipline. When that book didn't sell, he subsequently reworked it into an inquiry concerning human understanding, which was more successful. I think it would be fair to say that it is, however, only in the last century or so that Hume has gained a high stature among philosophers. So, first, I wonder if you could each tell me why you find David Hume a fascinating or important philosopher. Uh, Jane, would you like to start? Well, I, I find him fascinating because he's... He's both Enlightenment and romantic, and rom and a romantic as well. I mean, he, he's so he's got he's demolishing reason in a sort of romantic type way, romantic with a capital R, obviously. Uh -huh. But at the same time, he is using reason to devastating effect, um, and he really is stands at the threshold of modernity. In in demolishing reason, he's he's upgrading emotion and and the sort of what 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 he says is the sort of smooth way the mind can work just just in a sort of reflex way not using reason uh -huh. and the and he shows the importance of that so he's overcoming uh the or he's putting a new place to reason in thinking in other words well he's he's demoting it he's he's saying that 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 we're, we're not just rational creatures he's he's until now, reason has been the, the sort of distinguishing mark of human beings. And he's saying, well, actually, let's look at ourselves as embodied creatures. And that, of course, that's why, where he anticipates modernity. OK, I see. Uh, Peter, why would you say uh, he's an interesting uh, uh, philosopher? Uh, the similar kind of thought, but a slightly different slant. Uh -huh. He's, he's what philosophers say, naturalising reason. And by naturalising, they mean trying to make it intelligible... Um, uh, and in continuity with what we know about the rest of the natural world. So he okay. calls reason a mechanical force. Right. So rather than thinking of, hum uh, as Jane said, humans, reason is what made them distinct. And right. during that period, that has great religious overtones because man is made in the image of God and it's right. given dominion over all the animals. Hume models human thought on the stuff that everybody thought operated, the dogs and cats operated by a kind of mechanical tendency. Okay. Uh, and, James, uh, why do you like Hume's philosophy? Enough to do a PhD in it. Um, for similar reasons, I suppose, to both Jane and Peter, um, I think building on what Peter said, Hume slots very neatly into a modern Darwinian conception of human nature, um, whereby we're not... Um, uh, sort of made in the image of God, but rather, um, albeit sophisticated and quite complex animals, we're nevertheless still just animals. 
and um, I think my specialist interest being in Hume's moral philosophy, I think that's that's a very important point because a lot of um, philosophers nowadays think that somehow a evolutionary or Darwinian perspective le- uh, tends to undermine morality, whereas Hume saw things quite differently. Okay, that's great. Um, so, as I said, his major first major work was the Treatise of Human Nature, and that really kicked it off philosophically for Hume. Uh, so, I, I wonder, uh, Jane, could you fill us in on some of the intellectual background? What was going on philosophically? Uh, or, or what was going on scientifically that Hume was reacting to? Well, he wanted to be a Newton of the mind. Okay. And what he what he wanted to trace, I mean, also in, in this way, he's he's he did influence Darwin. I mean, Darwin specifically said so, and and he wants to show the way um, that the, the men- mental processes are caused they're not they're not just again we're not above the fray we're not above nature reason isn't this special thing it's actually we're rather like newton's forces and 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 attract you know forces of attraction and and gravity and so on there, there are there are sort of undercurrents with with the mind that sort of push thoughts from one place to another Okay. And and in fact, th- th- this this was what Hume thought was his one of his greatest um, contributions was his idea of the association of ideas that this happens willy nilly. Again, he's anticipating Freud. So, that, what happens willy nilly? Well, that the, the, the mind the mind just sort of is moved rather than moves itself right. from one thought to another along certain lines. You know, in in terms of what resemblance and and contiguity that things things being near to one another and also cause and effect if you see a wound for instance he says you think what caused the wound and what what is the effect of it the pain that automatically our minds are sort of almost push you know glide along certain alleyways but they're just sort of pushed rather than us doing the movement okay um Peter, I wonder if you could say how how this fits in with what he was trying to do in the treatise. I mean, what was his particular uh, goal in, in this book, this massive book that he was writing? Well, to, to touch on a little more about the intellectual context, um, Hume, the subtitle of the treatise is an attempt to introduce the experimental method of reasoning into right. moral sciences. And moral sciences broadly means ed- ed- any endeavor that isn't physics right. as opposed to natural sciences um, there had been long since Descartes long Which concern the 17th century the 17th century a long concern about what the correct method to uh, uh, acquire knowledge is right and uh, Newton had a method uh, so Isaac Newton had tremendous success in physics by abandoning the prior idea that we can know before experience what the world must be like in itself right. and Hume his Newtonianism and his says we're going to quit this l- tedious lingering method and instead experiment and observe and that's that's a major shift in philosophy so he was trying to basically be a scientist about morality broadly considered about everything right, right. so the the he stated so the the treatise itself is in three books uh-huh. part one is, uh, book one is on the understanding our general thoughts then the second book is on the passions and then the third book is on morality and he's applying the same 
observational method in a way that's very distinct from other philosophers who thought that they could provide through non-experimental ways a, a grasp of what the world must be like in itself and then build upon that foundation. Right, so maybe we'll get into how well he, he did this. Um, James, I, I, to what extent uh, did his... Is it morality as we understand it and to what extent is... Uh, his interest in what he calls moral science different from our understanding of morality? Uh, well, the first point to make is just a terminological one. When he talks about, I mean, as Peter rightly said, you've got um, moral subjects mentioned in the subtitle of his Treatise of Human Nature, but what Hume's referring to there is is not moral in our narrow sense of ethical. He's referring to moral subjects as anything to do with um, human creatures that isn't found in the, the natural physical world. Um, but then he applies this methodology to what we call morality more narrowly, to um, what you might call ethics, um, in, as, again, as we said in the third book of his treatise. And then yeah. also, again, he reworks some of the thoughts there in his later book, The Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. Um, and what his general view of morality is, is to, um, again, in line with what we're saying about his intellectual background, to um, t take um, this mysterious concept of reason, which not just um, in philosophers just prior to him, like Descartes and others, had played such a vital role, but even going all the way back to the foundations of Western philosophy and Plato, uh -huh. um, the Greek philosopher, uh, 4th century BC. <laughs> Thank you. Um, had played such a, a major role in the driving seat of moral philosophy. And um, Hume really wanted to establish that um, the fundamental basis of the distinctions we make between good and bad, right and wrong, just and unjust, are based in the final instance not on... Um, ra are not rational distinctions, but are um, emotional or sentimental distinctions. Okay, so he's basically uh, reducing morality to uh, emotion, is that what you're saying? Well, it's not quite that he reduces it to mo emotion alone. Um, reason still plays a role for him. Um, it plays a role in enabling us to work out how to realise the um, ends that our moral and other practical attitudes set for us. So, um, if I, to take an example, um, if I want a cup of coffee, um, I still need my reason in order to tell me where to find that coffee right. and so on. Um, but um, it won't give reason itself won't give me the want the desire for right, the coffee, and he thinks the same thing about morality, that if I um, want to stop um, suffering um, in my country or around the world, then um, that desire or want is, is basically a sentimental, sentimental um, aspect of our mind, but that reason is needed to work out how to do that. Okay, Jane? Well, also, I, I think he was very innovative in saying that actually morality is based on what he calls sympathy now sympathy isn't exactly what we, we mean by sympathy right. it's a it's a sort of again a rather almost mechanical way of being able to pick up and recognize other people's feelings and and 
and also to be affected by them. He uses, he uses a metaphor of sort of twangling strings, that, that your strings, as if you're an instrument, are somehow stirred by, by, by the twanglings of somebody else's strings. Um, <laughs> that sounds a bit uh-huh. odd, but but um, you, so you mean the strings of your emotions? Your, the strings of your emotions, and and he says that you prefer that other people are happy rather right. than not, unless they're your enemies. And for instance, you know, you might be more comfortable if you were walking along a hard pavement to walk on somebody's gouty toes, but it simply wouldn't occur to you because you don't, unless this person is a bitter enemy of yours, you don't want to cause discomfort. We actually we're just attuned to other people. Right. With these, with these sort of twangling strings, but also, also we, we want people to be happy on the whole. Okay. Uh, well, th- th- I mean, I would say, did he just assume this to be the case, and how far this uh, would uh, fit with his general uh, approach to um, philosophy? So, but I want to go back to the treatise and say that. Hume starts uh, this book, The Treatise of Human Nature, by distinguishing what he calls impressions and ideas. I wonder, Peter, if you could tell me what he meant by these terms and uh, and what the distinction is and why he started there. Good question. Um, I, I start by, by approaching that somewhat obliquely by saying right. if you, the book opens with a series of what appear to be just announcements... Right. right, that we divide the mind into two perceptions, and the two perceptions are uh, two kinds of perceptions: impressions, which are roughly our sensory input, right. and ideas, which. So are, you mean? Sorry, let me clarify that. Like, yes. You mean by sensory input, you mean like our experiences of the That's world, right. what we like touch, a taste sees. of things, yeah. exactly, exactly, uh-huh. and our ideas are that which 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 we um, can think about the things that we've confronted. So they're the things in our minds as a result of having these impressions. And Hume claims that all our thoughts, generally speaking, it's it's complicated, but but all our thoughts, generally speaking, are derived from sensory experience. Okay. But now, to go back to my uh, remark, it seems like an announcement, and to to non-contemporary readers one wonders where all this comes from until you recognise that all this vocabulary was used to explain how animals operate in the world. So he didn't invent it. That was already in use in that time. That's right. In the 18th century. That's right. But his his claim, and going back to what I said about his methodology, his claim that this is the case is... A claim he says is based on observation, right. and it doesn't have, as it were, any prior grand status. It's just this is what we observe of human beings. Right. Okay. So, um, and this uh, would make him what the philosophers call an empiricist. Uh, I wonder, uh, James, could you tell tell us what this broadly means in in terms of how it applies to Hume? Um. Well, empiricism is generally is the doctrine that um, knowledge or understanding comes through our um, experiences, right. um, primarily focused on sense experience. Although Hume himself includes um, not just sensory experiences, but bodily appetites, um, feelings, other sorts of mental states under the um, the umbrella term of impressions or experience. Um, but it, so all of these different experiences, he says, uh, what give us our ideas about the world, um, and this is particularly important when it comes to 
um, ideas that he thinks do not derive from sense experience. So one such idea is the idea of causality, right. central to his philosophy. He doesn't think this comes from sense experience. He thinks it comes from some other, our idea comes, at least in part, from some other aspect of our experience. So, uh, Jane, I wonder if you could clarify that for us. I mean, causality, if, if it's not you know, an idea that we originally are born with or something like that, then what does Hume mean? Well, Hume says, look, what, what, what do we expect in, in the cases of causes and effects? Well, one thing is we think that the cause is before the effect. We think that, they're very, that they, they follow very quickly after, the effect follows very quickly after the cause. And also, it's not just that it happens to happen. It, it, it constantly happens, you know, you put water above uh, in a pan above fire and it boils and that constantly happens so so the the heating of the water causes it to boil right but not only this priority and contiguity as he calls it and this this constant conjunction but also he thinks there's a necessary connection it's not just that it constantly happens it's got to happen that's what we assume but the point is that with each of his impressions, he thinks that, that with each of the ideas that we have, so this is a complex idea with four bits, but all our ideas must be based on impressions. Right. But what impression do we have of necessary connection? What would it look like, smell like, taste like? There's nothing sensory so if feel like. So, so in which case, we, do we really have an impression of necessary connection, which can then in turn, turn into an idea, into a concept. Okay, let me stop you there. Um, you're saying, basically, that uh, Hume's saying that there's our idea of things causing other things is that there's a necessary connection between them, but where does he get this uh, idea from is yes, the question, he, right? exactly. What, what, what he's saying is this is what we expect. This, this is our concept of causation, but maybe, you see, any ideas that aren't properly based on impressions, he then says, get rid of them. Throw, throw books about those sort of ideas on the fire. But those are invalid ideas. But himself about this? If, if what you say is true about what he thinks about causation, isn't he contradicting that idea? No, no, he's not, because, for instance, I mean, with the, what, what he'd say about the concept of God, although, of course, he's, he's, he's duly circumspect in, in, in saying this, is we've got an idea of God, but, of course, we've got no impressions to base it on. There are plenty of invalid ideas we've got which aren't right. properly based on impressions. So maybe causation is that. Okay. Maybe causation is such a it's, a... it's a it's a sort of... It's a three-legged stool instead of a four-legged stool, in which case it doesn't properly function as our concept of causation. Maybe we should chuck it out. Particularly, he says, we can't expect, if there isn't a necessary connection between a cause and an effect, then how do we know that, that there will be the same sort of causes and effects in the future? Actually, we're, we're very foolhardy in, in, in assuming this. It's, it's worked out like that before, that similar causes have similar effects. But will it always? Why should it? There's no reason... There's no reason and there's no empirical... Okay, so you're... Uh, I, sorry, you seem to be contradicting yourself a Do bit I? here. I mean, or maybe I'm unclear what you mean. Are you saying that Hume thought there was a necessary connection or not? Well, no, in, in the end, he says, maybe we, we, the necessary connection is one that we supply ourselves with our own feelings. We have a sense right, of... Okay. You know, you so see Michael like Jackson... Exactly. Michael Jackson dangles that poor little child over the balcony and we, we feel help there's, there's a sense of if he lets go it's got to fall we supply so the, the the sense of necessity is ours rather than 
perhaps in things themselves. Right, OK. I mean, how far would you agree with that, Peter? Is that a good summary of...? Well, um, uh, it's an air, a very controversial area of scholarship. Right. So um, the most of what Jane said is perfectly correct. Some commentators hold that he felt that... He held that there were really necessary connections in nature but completely unknown to us right so the causes really exist but we just don't know what they are right uh yes so that's one way of putting it but another way is to say look he is saying there's causation but objectively speaking all there is to causation is regularity it's just one damn thing after another and nothing as it were in a cause brings about an effect it's just that a cause is such that it's always followed by so, so imagine, so uh, imagine watching a cartoon, right? And you see uh, Tom hit Jerry over the head, right? And flatten Jerry. But now, of course, you know that these are just images, and it's not the case that Tom is really squashing. It's just you see one thing being followed by another, right? And if on the radical view of Hume, that is precisely how the universe is, right? It's not the case that when, in real life, I were to hit someone over the head, that there would be me actually bringing about the pain. It would just simply be that this event is followed by that event. Um, is that really a, a plausible view of what he... It doesn't sound like a co- coherent doctor. OK, Jane? Well, well, I, exactly. I agree with Peter because he mentions secret powers. I think with a lot of his... I mean, in 1905, somebody called Norman Kemp Smith wrote an article saying Hume isn't really a sceptic. He's a naturaliser, which is what, what Peter was saying earlier. Meaning that he wants to sort of squash humans down into nature and say, look, they're subject to the same natural laws as animals. Animals and plants, right? And and so, I, I think that what what he's saying is, of course there is causation. Of course, there's an external world which he also disputes. And of course, there are all these things which I'm purporting to be sceptical about. There have to be. I mean, I certainly can't live my life as if there aren't. I have to live my life as if the, there is causation. There is an external world. There is a self, which is something else that he disputes. Um, but I can never actually prove these things so I, th- I think what he's saying is you know it's as if there's a, there's a there's a wall behind which we can't see but really he knows quite well behind that wall yes there's there's necessary connection and causation and so on right um but but so he's sort of playing playing tricks on us in a way he's a very witty philosopher okay he I believes see. he believes and yet he doesn't believe and and you know he, he he does say i can't i simply the current of nature forces me to to, to believe in 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 fact what i in principle doubt uh, james um it, it seems from what they the, the other two have been saying that hume isn't entirely consistent in the things that he concludes uh, in his philosophy i mean what does he conclude we can know about the world that we have these only that we can only know from what we have impressions of i mean what are the limits of what we can know sort of thing um well i think that i have what peter called the more radical view of hume's theory of causation um i think that um there's a distinction to be made though between the way Peter described it and what Jane called the skept- overly sceptical view. So, skeptical. Which one would you go for? Well, I mean, I, I don't believe Hume was a sceptic in the sense that he denied that there's any such thing as 
necessary connection. Right. Um, I think he's quite clear on this point. He says we do have an idea of necessary connection, and he constantly speaks throughout his philosophical works in terms of powers in nature, in terms of um, forces, in terms of um, one one event producing another. Um, I think that, though, what he is saying is that this um, productive quality, this um, way in which one thing produces another, is not something which we read off of the world. It's not something that we learn about or get our concept of through experience of um, the external world. It's something that our minds impose on the world um, if you like it's uh, uh, part of our interpretation of that experience although it is of course absolutely vital to, ha- to our making sense of it whatsoever it's, it's very important for us having any idea of um, exter- the external world at all that we do understand it in terms of these causal patterns yeah well it, it seems to me that you can't really sensibly talk about the world without talking about causes so i'm i can't understand why people would think that he would think that there isn't causes james on on the radical view and by the way the radical view is uh, is the mainstream view of what hume claimed about causation he's not saying that there is no causation right he's saying that causation is less than we Mm. thought it was Okay. And that yeah. that that we we have this idea that there's Sorry, some. Th- what, it, what we thought it was this necessary connection, but it's we what, thought it involved that. That's right. But yeah. it only involves regularity in that's nature. That's right. Yeah. And that, what causes the regularity is what I would say. Um, then you're just going to be on a regress. Right. <laughs> um, it, it's it it, it uh, it's it's the standard view of Hume, but it is radical. Right. It really is that the universe is just a set of contingently related events. Right. And so they, it's all random in other words. Well, it's not random. They're, they have regular patterns, right. but there's nothing underwriting the patterns. Okay. Right? Okay, James? He, he's, he's fairly inconsistent in a way, because in a way he's relying on causation to explain the association of ideas. Uh-huh. You're caused to have, to, to move from one idea to another by a resemblance between one idea and another so, so there's psychological causes so the psychological causation and and actually i mean then he says things like in the inquiry he says though though there be no such thing as chance in the world our ignorance of the real cause of any event has the same influence on the understanding so he he often seems to talk as if yes there is causation with its full panoply of its four prongs including necessary connection but then at the same time he's saying yes but we can never and i think james was saying that we can we can never actually you know authenticate that we can never be absolutely certain because empirically we can't through our experience we right. can't have that sense of necessary connection unless we provide it ourselves unless we project it onto so, the world so we're reading causation into the world whereas in our experience there's nothing to sort of uh, back up that reading if is that a fair well yes because because he, he says yes because he's he's got such an atomized view of of events that that, that you know he, i mean he's quite right you can't see you can see one thing happening after another but you can't actually perceive a necessary connection what would it be like to perceive the necessity what would necessity look or smell or taste like right. do you see what i mean how, how would you move from the cause to the effect with necessity what would you be perceiving other than one thing following another 
Okay, and on that note, I think we'll go into the psychedelic furs and all of this and nothing.
Uh, hello, uh, that was the Psychedelic Furs, and welcome back to the Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and I'm discussing the lo- we're discussing the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. Uh, I have with me Jane O'Grady, Peter Kale, and James Arnold. Um, now, uh, before before the song, we were talking a bit about Hume's sort of radical views on causation. And uh, I wonder, Peter, if you could say a, a little bit about how he could justify coming to some, such radical views of, uh, you know, when we so naturally believe in causes and things like that. Right. So, this, uh, I mean, this is part and parcel of his method. So if you recall, I said he, what, everything had to be established by observation. Right. Um, now, this is... This is an interesting contrast to other philosophers, as I said, who says that something must be built on a f- foundation first that's uh, 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 that's not grasped through observation. So, so just pure reason, for instance. That's right. So, so one of the things is is that a number of the claims that Hume makes about the how shall I put it furniture of the mind right. are just antiquated. And false, like but, give us an example. Well, just the the picture of the mind as the association of ideas. Right. Okay, but that actually is going to be a welcome uh, uh, consequence in a way for a philosopher like Hume, because the uh, the the re- refinement of the model is it going again down to science, and that's something that Hume. Um, would welcome in a way that other philosophers wouldn't, because so you mean the refinement of the model of the mind yeah. is something that you can now derive from a scientific approach. That's right, and okay. Hume, in some sense, started all that. With so the he treatise. was a proto-psychologist, certainly. Yeah, certainly. Okay, but now it's also interesting because, unlike a, a lot of psychologists now, he thinks that through this observation there can be a great deal of sceptical upshot, right? Right. And that we come to discover that we can know less than we thought. And in fact, things aren't as we thought beforehand. So in the inquiry, Hume draws a distinction between two kinds of scepticism, antecedent scepticism and consequent scepticism. Antecedent scepticism, the the sovereign remedy much inculcated by Descartes right. was that you doubt everything first and then discover what you can know what you can know and then proceed and Hume says that there's no such starting point instead there's the starting point of experience but there is a form of skepticism he says that's consequent upon inquiry such that you realize as James was saying the pretensions of reason are are uh, pretensions and they we can't have the kinds of knowledge that some philosophers thought that we could we can't understand the internal structure of the external world um, and and other such such um, consequences okay. so the skepticism comes from his naturalistic approach so there was very there were various things that we would be skeptical about i mean uh, another example i know would be his skepticism and belief that there is a self i mean again that's another you know common self-belief that we common sense belief that we all believe we have a self but i mean i wonder jane if you could tell us a bit about his skepticism about the self well, he, he applies his, his usual impressions, ideas um, mechanism on this, his, right. that methodology. And, and he says that, look, 
if I've got an idea of the self, once again, as with causation, I've got this idea, but is it valid? Is it properly based on impressions? Well, I don't actually have an impression of myself. He said, I don't know about other philosophers, but I certainly don't. All I can find when I ransack myself for myself is just whatever perceptions I'm having of heat or cold, heat or cold, light or dark, pleasure or pain, whatever it is. But I can't find myself. And it's almost as if I'm a sort of theatre with all these with all these impressions sort of passing in front of me. But but there isn't any unity in this. And even the metaphor of the, of the theatre is misleading because there isn't a place where this is happening. Maybe all there are are just sort of impressions floating around. But isn't uh, could it not be the case that the problem is with his methodology? In other words, you could say that if he's saying that or anything everything we know must be an impression but then somebody might say yeah but the self is the thing that has impressions it's not itself an impression so why what's wrong with that sort of counter to his argument well i mean apart from anything else he he sort of disobeys his own rules because because he often talks about the self i mean when he's talking about emotions for instance with pride you 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 refer all the the sort of the, the beauty or the or the grandeur of of what you possess for instance to yourself so he does rely on this sort of unitary thing which is somehow important in in human behavior and in human life right and and also you're right i mean he just he's he's naughty with his impressions and ideas because he just and i think peter touched on this he just sort of rushes into to both the inquiry and the and the treatise which of course he originally wrote saying of course everyone knows that they just have impressions and ideas you know it, it, that that's what it's like he doesn't really argue for it Okay. If I may respectfully sure. disagree on a couple of points. That yeah, it's not it's not the case that he's been naughty or rushing in. It starts he's starting with an observational claim and right. then building upon it. And the, uh, it looks rushed to us because we don't know the context. And the second thing is that he doesn't deny that there is a self. Right. He says he denies a certain model of what the self is okay. that his predecessors held. So we and, but it's also true that it's implicit in some level of our thought. So, but we think that uh, when, you, when you think that there's a thought, you think that there's a thing that's thinking the thought. Right. And Hume is denying that there is a thing that's thinking the thought. The self is a collection of those thoughts. So it's just like, say, the Collegial University of London. Right. It's comprised. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, that London is comprised by those colleges, but there isn't a thing called the university. Okay, Jane, you wanted to count. Well, that? well, just v- very quickly. I mean that 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 when he writes an abstract of the um, treatise afterwards as a sort of defence of it. He says that, you know, he is a great philosopher and therefore he's always sort of challenging himself. And he says, look, I'm very dissatisfied with my view of the self in the treatise. And and so so quite clearly, you know, he I, I think he I think he is more sceptical about the self than, than, than Peter thinks. But I think he's also sceptical about his scepticism about the self. Right. So he doesn't really know what he's thinking. He doesn't yet. really. He, he isn't really. He's he's he feels that this, this isn't a proper way of dealing with it but he's not quite okay. sure what would be all right so he's sort of agnostic let's yeah leave it there. okay james um it's sort of famous or hume is sort of famous one of the things that is a well-known hume quote is that reason 
is and should be the slave of the passions. I don't know if that's verbatim, but there you go. I mean, what what does he mean by that, and and what does it imply for his philosophy, especially for morality? Well, if you want the verbatim quote, it's right. reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions, and right. can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Okay, uh, it's a very um, sort of grabs the attention that line, so it's rightly famous. Um, I think there Hume was engaging in a bit of rhetoric. Um, this is when he wrote the... This is in his Treatise of Human Nature, which I think he mentioned he, he wrote before he was 30. In fact, he published it when he was 27. Mm -hmm. um, when I reflect that I'm 27 now, that gives me some uh, cause yeah. for concern. You better get cracking. Um, huh? But... Um, so he, he... In the treatise of human nature his his view in effect is is um that reason isn't what uh, it, it sort of goes back to the point we mentioned before the break that reason isn't in the driving seat it's the passions that are in the driving seat um so if i um want something it's my sorry by that, passions you mean emotions in our modern well uh, terminology? Hume, by, Hume, Hume includes the emotions he has a very broad right. um, definition of what the passions are but essentially it's any mental state that in, as he says inclines the will or motivates you in some way okay so, um, so it, it's not necessarily what we might think of as passions which you know might be associated with particularly strong desires or um or um, some some romantic associations. He, when he talks about passion, he he includes such things as what he calls the calm passions, which can just be a love of your children, which right. manifests it, manifests itself in a settled disposition to um, help them so get forward in life. So we can say maybe um, emotions and or desires, perhaps, is a passion. It, yeah. Yes, it certainly includes desires for him. All right. Um, and and reason's role in this then is just to direct the passions to. Um, what it is that they want. So, as I said, if I if I want a drink or I want some food or if I want to something more complicated, like to achieve the best for my children, as I just mentioned, then I really need to think about um, very hard about how to um, best achieve that end. It's not it's not always a very um, easy thing to work out. So reason still plays an important role, but it but it is enslaved to the passions in that sense, that they're they're the ones that set our ends of action and reason only really gives us the means to achieve those. Okay. Peter, I wonder if you could say, is that right? Because I my my feeling is shouldn't we put our passions under the control of our reason rather than the other way around? I mean should we or should we just do what we desire? Well uh, Hume says that some the activities of the calm passions are sometimes mistaken for reason. Right. Mm. Right. Um, and so the, your, the objection would work if it were uh, 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 with the conception of a passion, as James said, as a kind of this kind of this violent emotion. But Hume actually distinguishes between those two things. Right. And it's the it's the steady disposition of of the person which controls so uh, you know a calm um, love of one's children together with reason does direct conduct in a way that we find reasonable right right you're being a reasonable person but it's not your grasp of some truth that's pushing you to um uh, do uh, look after your children 
Okay, but uh, okay, Jane. Um, well, I, I think it's interesting that because passion, of course, was was the term that was used for emotions. I mean, had been since since Aristotle. I mean, when since Plato and Aristotle with parte, but um, but I think he also uses the word emotion and the word sentiment. But uh, but I think what's interesting is uh, where I'm really perplexed with him is what are the passions driving because when he talks about the will he sometimes talks as if the will is just another impression it's the impression of what it's like to move part of your body in which case what the hell is actually doing the moving (laughs) there isn't a self there isn't will because it's just another impression it it, it seems as if in, in in the end there's just sort of floating sensations and what what actually galvanizes i mean things. this 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 is um a problem i would have is that ultimately speaking yeah what what sort of justifies the passions that you do uh choose to uh act upon I and mean, james have you got a- uh, yeah i th- i um well those are two separate questions the one that james raised and the one that you've raised right. but to um just to briefly refer back to what jane was saying at some at some points he does um seem to refer to the impression of the will um i think that that's probably a mistake which he's led into by his empiricism he wants there to be a a simple impression behind every simple idea as he says but in other areas he refers to the will as a faculty of the mind and he actually has a very rich faculty psychology of the mind where it's separated into sort of distinct domains of reason the will imagination um the moral faculty um all of these things and i think it's it's really the the faculty of the will is is under the control of the passions it's not under the control of um, reason in the okay. in the final instance. So could en- could anybody tell me why he thinks you're justified in doing what your passions, uh, you know, why passions should come before reason? Well, it's uh, the ground of it is what other human beings uh, will approve of right. in the end. Mm. So he so that brings us into another feature of his moral philosophy, which is. Uh, at the time quite radical and actually in some sense modern moral philosophy is starting only just now to catch up with Hume his view of morality is not um, take it in terms of uh, think of it in terms of what should I do given a certain kind of act but a much richer notion of what kinds of human beings are admirable and it's a concentration on persons characters and in the end the right kind of character is those which uh, of which we will human beings on reflection approve but there's no again so naturalism there's no external fact or sanction that that govern or that is the measure of what it is that human beings do apart from the common party of humanity as he puts it Um, so we all approve generally speaking of people who look after their children and we disapprove of those who have this tendency to be abusive um and that the foundation is just our common set of sentiments okay uh this is this is based on sympathy i I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how the sympathy works for hume the idea of sympathy jane 
Well, I mean, like I, like I said, this sort of in, in intuitive sense of other people's feelings and also much preferring that, that, that they are happy. And, and, and I think it's funny that he's got a very optimistic view of humans, really, that we do automatically have approval for what have been considered good things. I mean, what I mean is that, that automatically we like people who are kind and, and generous and, and so on. Right. And, and maybe, of course, empirically, I suppose that's true, but he doesn't allow for psychopaths and he doesn't allow for sort of feral children. Okay, so that, that would be a spanner in the works of his morality, would they? Um, well... Uh, I mean, I, I would say that he... You're right that sometimes he's overly optimistic and he says that such a person would be a monster, but we don't really find these in the real world. Um, however, I think that he could accommodate um, the, if you like, this notion of the pure psychopath. Um, he could simply say that they're, they're not the sort of um, person that we hold responsible for their actions. They they are pathological and they're not. they don't have the kind of... Um, character that can be um, modified by approval and disapproval. They don't care about that sort of thing. So we just have to treat them as it were as, as um, uh, to some extent similar to a natural disaster. They wreak havoc, but we can't really um, we, c we can only mitigate the impact of what they do yeah. we can't yeah but w on what basis does he sort of disallow their feelings whereas allowing what we would say a normal acceptable moral feelings on what sort of basis does he say that well i mean it's it, he doesn't really talk about psychopathy so this is just a, a, a sort of extrapolating i think he mentions nero okay he does as, yes. as a sort of villain in history and who is a sort of psychopath he, i mean he doesn't use the word psychopath um but he he, he would i think it would be um, not that we're more justified somehow that in the sense that we can, you know, um, show through the right reasons why we're right and the psychopath is wrong. It's rather that the psychopath lacks something. They lack a capacity for right. certain moral and other social mm. feelings that yeah. um, human beings naturally possess. It, it would be a bit like, I mean, an analogy I like to use is, is someone who... Um, is unable to um, learn a language. Um, they're, they're missing out on something, something quite serious and integral to human life. It's not that they're unjustified in missing out on that, right. but that they, they're, they're certainly not able to draw correct linguistic distinctions in the way that we're able to. And similarly, a psychopath, um, as, as empirical research has shown, are, uh, is unable to draw correct, mor what we, we would call correct moral distinctions, but again, it's just lacking this capacity rather than any kind of cognitive or rational defect in the... He does also make a distinction between natural virtues and artificial virtues. Right. So, so naturally, we might be sympathetic and everything, but then we've got to use our reason to sort of extrapolate from, from the particularities of the people that we, you know, I mean, that we automatically feel sympathetic towards our friends and family. But we've got to realise that there are other people who have friends and families. And so even if we don't feel sympathetic to them, rationally, we should be just. Okay, fine. Uh, well, finally, we're coming to an end of the show. So finally, Peter, I wonder if you could tell us what do you think Hume got right and what do you think he got wrong? He got right uh, the methodology of philosophy. Which is? Uh, which is naturalism. Okay. That, uh, that 
there are no genuine questions that can be answered uh, that aren't answerable in the end by science. And using science in a in a broad... Uh, Jane's gone crazy. Um, <laughs> using science in a very broadest term. So right. that the illusion that there is what's called first philosophy, namely uh, uh, philosophy that de- determines truth independently of that, is one that Hume shatters. Okay, okay. Jane, why did you think that was uh, nonsense? Well, I think that's probably why um, Isaiah Berlin, who, or whoever you mentioned, said yeah, that, that Hume was disturbing. Because, um, I mean, I think he did open the door to, to too much naturalism. I mean, it isn't just that science can decide everything, and I don't think that ultimately Hume would have thought that either. Okay. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, well, it's a kind of doctrinal, but we've... Uh, but, you know, the, uh, Hume's legacy are philosophers like Quine yeah. and Daniel Dennett. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. Now, it's Ugh. true that Dennett, Dennett is not liked by uh, a lot of philosophers, but <laughs> but um, I think the history of philosophy has shown, as it were, as anything that actually is genuinely informative gets assimilated to the sciences. So we're talking, for example, about psychopathy. That moral category is now under the, as it were, discussion and discretion of the sciences and naturalism is the only way to go in philosophy so you think that all eventually all uh, philosophy turns into science yeah okay james i think ultimately in the end um what i find very powerful in hume is that he he is as peter says a naturalist a thoroughgoing naturalist about human um mind and human affairs but that he he doesn't allow that to undermine his um his uh, view of the dignity of human nature he truly believes that for example in my field in in moral philosophy he truly believes that there are universal moral principles ones that are a part of our human nature and he doesn't rely on any um religious or mystical or any other sort of props in order to um, establish that and that's what i find quite compelling i do want to remind you that hume is some sort of dualist he does say an object may exist and be nowhere and you know when he talks about that he talks about objects like the passions like um thoughts he thinks that they actually are other than than physical okay well that's uh, that's a question for another time maybe uh okay well thank you for for my guest for peter james and jane um jane i know you're teaching a course on hume i wonder if you could tell people a little bit about that we've got about a minute to go so okay well it's at the london school of philosophy i mean which is situated in conway hall in in hoban and um, I've only done one of the Hume sessions so far, so anyone is welcome to join. OK, uh, how would they uh, contact you? They would, they would just go onto the website of London School of Philosophy and, and there they, they, they would see the course and they could just contact me that way. OK, thanks. Uh, well, I want to say th- thank you for my engineer, Francisco. Uh, and uh, next week it will be Anja Steinbauer talking about uh, either Buddhism or comedy. Uh, but I don't know which yet. So if you come back <laughs> at five o'clock next week, you'll find, find out. And uh, uh, thanks for listening.